we live in Guantanamo stigma. We live in Guantanamo 2.0. I haven't rebuilt my life. Mansour Adeifi was released from the U.S. military prison in Guantanamo Bay six years ago. He was one of the 780 men held there since January 11, 2002, when the first detainees arrived. Hundreds of them have since been released, most without charges. But 39 men are still at the prison, some of them with no plans for trial and no plans for release. Three presidents have called to close Guantanamo. Imagine a future 10 years from now or 20 years from now when the United States of America is still holding people who have been charged with no crime on a piece of land that is not part of our country. That was in 2013. Still, it lingers. So today, we're looking at the last 20 years through the eyes of one survivor who's devoted his life to closing Guantanamo. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. After his release, Mansour published a book about his experiences called Don't Forget Us Here. He wrote parts of it while shackled to the floor of a prison room in Guantanamo. He now lives in Serbia with no travel documents and many other security restrictions. I am Mansour Daifi, former Guantanamo detainee. They used to call me 441 or Smiley Troublemaker. Hey, we are here today. <laughs> that was your nickname given to you by the guards? When I used to uh, protest and fight back and resist the torture, the interrogation, the mistreatment and the beating, I used to always smile, even like sometimes I, I was bleeding, and they they view us as troublemakers. So they used to call me the smiley troublemaker. So basically, it's it's a way like in their view, in their eye, in their opinion that we are troublemakers because you are not compliant, basically. So before we get to Guantanamo, I want to rewind a little bit. Tell me first about your childhood. I am from the country of love, Yemen, the happy Yemen. It is not now, but inshallah will be happy soon. I grew up in the mountain in a conservative family, a large family, brothers and sisters. I finished my secondary school. Then there wasn't any high school in my uh, village. So I have to go to the city, another world. See the new world, like the electricity, the streets, the light, the TV, everything. It was like, whoa, because when you live in the village, <laughs> it's just, you know, a small world and there is no access to the world. As Mansour tells it in his book, in 2001, he left his home to do research in Afghanistan for an Islamic institute in Yemen. At that time, after 9-11, the CIA was offering bounties for anyone in Afghanistan with connections to al-Qaeda. Mansour was captured by a warlord and handed over to the CIA. Under torture, he confessed to being a senior commander in al-Qaeda, a specific man who was actually much older and Egyptian, not Yemeni. The U.S. later dropped the accusation, but by then, Mansour was in the Guantanamo system. So... I want to talk specifically about your first memories in Guantanamo. So let's start with your arrival in Guantanamo Bay. Do you remember arriving there? What can you tell us about that day? 
Yes, of course. I remember every single detail. It was wow. crazy. So basically, at Guantanamo, we spent 40 hours, over 40 hours on the, on the airplanes from one airplane to another. When we arrived there, the first time I arrived, I was happy because it was a really painful uh, journey. The first thing I heard really loud, uh, someone uh, shouting loudly in a speaker in his hands. And he was like, now you are under the control of American Marines. Then the beating even went worse. Mansour says he was handed to U.S. Marines, processed, and stripped naked. They have set up something called the process station, where they strip us naked because we were hooded, gagged. I have like duct tape over my mouth, and my eyes. You feel the scissors, they cut the clothes. You feel just someone push you to the ground. If you get injured, they don't care. And I feel there is like something over my body. They had the long brooms. The brooms, they used to clean the floor. And they put a lot of soap of our bodies, a lot of soap. Someone with the walls of water and like someone like brushing our bodies, like that, that cleaning, if it's like a shower. That's how they were cleaned, he says, scrubbed with hard brushes. And uh, of course, naked. The guards were very well protected. With shields, like the soldiers in shields and body armors, because they were told they, are, they were dealing with the worst of the worst terrorists, professional killers. This is the most vicious killers on the planet. Imagine when the guards of soldiers came to Guantanamo with that mentality. Mansour was already injured at that point. So after I got off that, I was dragged again because I couldn't walk. I dragged to the cage. They hit our heads on the floor, pile on top of us and drag us. Then they removed the shackles, he says. And then they removed the hood and the, the duct tape. All you can see, I, I couldn't see nothing at the beginning because bright light. And everything was happening so fast. Imagine you have been all this journey for almost like over 40 hours and no sleep, no eat, no drink, nothing. Plus the beating, plus the confusion, plus the fear, plus everything. My brain couldn't process was what was going on. Yeah, of course. And when I start processing things around me, all I can see cages, like ocean of orange suits. All of us were shaved. You could see swollen uh, faces, uh, split lips, bleedings. For the next three weeks, you could see the bruises still there. I didn't know where I was or why I was there. Who are these people? Even the, the brothers with me there, we didn't know each other. And we didn't have any like common or shared life before Guantanamo. I turned 19 in the black side. When I ended up in Guantanamo, I tried to process what is happening. Mansour has countless memories like this, ranging from the depraved to the mundane. So you were there for so long. There must have been different periods of your life under different administrations in which you had different treatment from the guards. What are the major periods that you remember? When you say the long time, it's not just a long time, America. Someone asked me a question. How did you live your 20s? I said, what does it mean, 20s? I have no idea what does it mean, 20s. When we end up in Guantanamo, for example, like someone ended up in jail, everything freezes for you. Time, 
knowledge, experience, growing up, everything freezes there. It's not just freezes. Things will deteriorate for you, like psychologically, mentally, physically, especially at Guantanamo, because we were totally disconnected from the world. Everything was uh, isolated. There is a huge gap between my life. So sometimes I feel like my behavior, my thinking, my, my actions, it's like sometimes I still feel like I'm 20 and yeah. So basically, yes, Guantanamo changes between 2002 and 2010. It was, I call it the dark age. We went on many, so many hunger strikes, torture, abuse, beating, protests, a lot, a lot. In 2009, when Mr. Obama promised to close Guantanamo, he even signed an executive order. <laughs> but it didn't happen. This first executive order that we are signing uh, by the authority vested in me as president by the Constitution. Many people remember that executive order, but not so much what happened next. To remind us, we spoke to Wells Dixon, a senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights. I've represented several dozen men detained at Guantanamo over the last 16 years, and I currently have two remaining clients. When President Obama was elected and came into office, his administration made a strong commitment to closing Guantanamo. That obviously didn't happen, but President Obama did make an effort early in his administration to improve conditions for the detainees because his administration recognized detaining individuals indefinitely without charge impacted the U.S. ability to comply with international law, including the Geneva Conventions. Mansour says that time is when the detainees noticed some reforms. They relaxed the rules. We call it the golden age. He and his fellow detainees, he calls them his brothers, took the opportunity to pursue humane conditions at the prison, from the guards and the system. Something Guantanamo sorely lacked under the administration of George W. Bush. We demanded, you know, first of all, about our case at Guantanamo. But they told you we have no uh, control for that. So basically, we asked for the change within the stopping the torture, the interrogation, improving the living condition, health care, uh, food, clothing, communication with our families, classes also. They were really fought hard for to get classes in English and art and so on. And Wells says things were going okay with Obama's Guantanamo plans. His administration did make substantial progress. They transferred a lot of detainees in uh, the first few years of his administration. President Obama was confronted with a number of political challenges. And by late 2010, early 2011, he surrendered closure issues to his political opponents in Congress. I transferred 67 detainees to other countries before Congress imposed restrictions to effectively prevent us from either transferring detainees to other countries or imprisoning them here in the United States. And Mansour says, after that time, things started to turn. We had only like the golden age lasted almost like for three years, 2010, 11, and 12. And by, the, by the end of 2012, starts like when the army come back again, they didn't like the situation. Transfers from Guantanamo ceased entirely for a period of two years. And that caused 
a lot of disruption, a lot of pain for the men who remained at Guantanamo. It wasn't until the end of the Obama administration that Mansour was cleared for release. How did you first hear that you might be able to leave? How long were you waiting for your release? In America, as a Muslim, alhamdulillah, I never have any doubt that I would leave Guantanamo one day. Because uh, it just, for me, there was some kind of peace and tranquility in my heart. I will leave no matter what. Even like the interrogators, they used to intimidate us. And they used to tell us, you will never leave Guantanamo. You know, the worst thing at Guantanamo, you didn't know why you were there and for how long and where are you going to be sent. And this was not knowing the time. And were you ever actually charged with anything? No, nothing. As I told you, if you read the statement of the government, nothing. Like we, we, when we are, we were protesting at Guantanamo or now doing activism after Guantanamo, we are actually demanding justice for the American justice system. Mm. Because what the American George W. Bush and the other government about Guantanamo, they had an injustice to their own justice system. So we are like fighting to for the closure of Guantanamo and demanding justice for the justice system itself if, if they believe in, in, in justice. It's worth mentioning here that Guantanamo prisoners are not part of the U.S. federal court system. The prisoners fall under the military's legal system, and there are plenty of issues with that system. In the trial for the alleged 9-11 hijackers, what you think would be a straightforward case with clear charges and evidence isn't. There's still a lot of disagreement about how it should proceed. 20 years after 9-11, the trial has yet to begin. For prisoners who were never charged, like Mansour, the process of negotiating their release to another country is just as complicated. The crazy thing, I was brought to Guantanamo against my own will. Then I was deported against my own will. I I had no choice. Yeah, uh, this is the crazy thing. He wanted to leave Guantanamo, but he didn't want to end up where he ended up. Basically, as Yemenis, in 2009, the Congress put a moratorium that none of Yemenis will go back to him because you think one of the Al-Qaeda tried to hijack the airplane at that time. So that moratorium was lifted in 2013. By the end of 2013, the Yemeni only already went in civil war. So we were located in a third country and they told us if anyone accepted by any country, he will be forced to leave. And this is the rules now. If you accept it by any country, you will be forced to leave. I don't want to come to Serbia. I mean, like, it's my life here. So basically, it's another story for another day. It is another story, but I want to touch very briefly on it because, as you mentioned, you were deported against your will. You have no connection to Serbia. You've never been to Serbia. So can you talk to us about how you've rebuilt your life? Mm, I cannot error. I cannot answer that question. Sorry. Mm. I haven't rebuilt my life. You know, I have just finished my university. I graduated just uh, in September, last September. Congratulations. Thank you. And my thesis was about rehabilitation and reintegration of former Guantanamo detainees into social life and the labor market. So I have been researching life after Guantanamo for the last few years. And I have really spent a lot of time talking to the brothers, to the family, to the lawyers, to the officials, to journalists. And it is chaos. There is, there was, there will be no any kind of rehabilitation or reintegration. And it is chaos. Yes, the United States, when they send prisoners to hosting countries, they send a large budget of money to the hosting countries, but 
there was no any like a setup pro a program for rehabilitation reintegration. If you are lucky in the up like in uh, Western countries like Germany or Canada or uh, uh, England, you'll be lucky or Qatar or Oman because this is the place where these prisoners manage to integrate and become a productive member in the society. If you are lucky in double in Senegal or United Emirates and other countries like Serbia, you will be in big trouble, basically. And you being in Serbia isn't like you're free right now. You're not allowed to leave without permission, which means you really can't leave. You are surveilled. Is that right? You know, it has been a lot of difficult challenges. And yes, I'm not allowed to Belgrade. I have to summon some camera quick three days ahead to where, why, when, how. And for the last five years, I have been trying with my government, with the Yemen embassy in the United States, in England, in Germany, in other countries, try to get my passport. I have been asking for the travel document because I need to get married. I found a wife. I needed to go somewhere where I can build my life and start live like a normal person like him. Because we live in Guantanamo 2.0. There's many cases. You know, some of the brothers still live in like, they have new status, new status. Some of the brothers harassed some of them like were deported some of them re-imprisoned some of them like lost their life as a consequences so we are obviously speaking because Guantanamo still exists 20 years after the U.S. war on terror began President Joe Biden launched a review of the prison almost a year ago and he said he wanted to close it too so Al Jazeera actually asked the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki on January 4th why Guantanamo hasn't been closed. As you know, the anniversary of the opening of Guantanamo Bay detention facility is next week. And the press secretary answered that there are U.S. legal provisions that prevent transfers to certain foreign countries or into the United States unless certain conditions are met. Section 1032 of the Act continues to bar the use of funds to transfer Guantanamo Bay detainees to the custody or effective control of certain... What's your response to that? So, basically what she said, she avoiding the answer to the question. This is simple as that. Because what she, she repeated what the previous government has done. You know, it's easy, they, they can't change it. The Congress many times put many obstacles for the closure of Guantanamo or the release of uh, move detainees and so on. But that could be done easily. As I told you, it's just a matter of time. Attorney Wells Dixon agrees. Congress is not blocking President Biden from closing Guantanamo. Congress has made detainee transfers more difficult by enacting various restrictions. But the Biden administration has all of the legal authority that it needs to close the prison. So blaming Congress may be a convenient excuse for the administration, but it's not the cause of the failure to close Guantanamo. Mansour says he is sure that the majority of the remaining Guantanamo detainees will be cleared for release. I know the Guantanamo process. I know the Guantanamo machinery. That was going to happen. And along with five other former detainees, Mansour submitted a plan to the Biden administration to end Guantanamo. Mansour is the Guantanamo Project Coordinator for CAGE, a UK-based campaign group that advocates for the closure of the prison camp. They're asking that the detainees be returned to their home countries, be given resources to start a new life. And they're also asking for an apology from the United States. Every detainee brought to Guantanamo has been Muslim, like Mansour. Throughout our interview, he talked about faith a lot, 
So I asked him if that's what helped get him through. It was important for you throughout your stay in Guantanamo to pray and to form this camaraderie with your Muslim brothers, the other men that were detained there. And one thing that doesn't get brought up a lot is the role that faith plays in people's ability to survive years of physical torture and abuse and the torture of waiting for release. So how important was that for you and the men that you knew? You know, I think the most important thing that helped us to serve as Guantanamo is what their faith and their religion. Even the psychologists, when they used to talk us, how we managed to survive, they, they concluded it's faith. Because as I told you, when you end up in that really dark tunnel, you go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Simple. Praying, waiting, because when you come to religion, it's recommended you for patience, not to lose hope, to continue and not to despair, and praying, and uh, be kind to yourself, to your neighbors, to your family, to all humans. I didn't include intentionally a lot of the faith because I don't want to be able to get the notion that, oh, he's trying to promote the religion. No, it's not. Yeah, it's just, we're trying to talk about the life there. But as a Muslims, where you come from, that religion play a major role in our life. And as I told you, those stuff we brought us to Guantanamo, ethics, morals, faith, religion, that's helped us to serve as Guantanamo. It's not just faith itself, other things too. It was easy for us because we have each other. So basically, also the, the generosity among the brothers, especially taking care of the young, the weak, the older, the sick. Alhamdulillah, you can see the light. I really feel the beautiful of my faith because taking care of those brothers, because we saw there was a lot of pain just to keep watching. We couldn't do that. We couldn't. So Alhamdulillah, it was like, it was really uh, an important role for our faith to survive at Guantanamo. And if you ask me, sometimes I, th I think how I managed to stay, you know, with, to keep my mind inside that small box, there was something beyond my capabilities, beyond my strength. It was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mercy. That would think what I can say. Mansur, thank you so much for taking the time to relive these moments in order to show why Guantanamo is still open and why it must close. I really appreciate you talking to me. Thank you so much. While Mansour continues his work to close Guantanamo, the Pentagon is building a new secret courthouse there. There will be no public access and no access for the press. It should be completed by 2023. And that's The Take. This is a story we're continuing to follow, and we'll be tweeting out some other stories we've done on Guantanamo and the so-called War on Terror. There's even a Spotify playlist. We're at AJ The Take on Twitter and Instagram. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke and Amy Walters, with Ruby Zaman, Priyanka Tilvey, Ney Alvarez, Nagin Oliay, and me, Malika Bilal. Our story editor is Tom Finton. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Aya Al-Milek is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is executive producer. Special thanks to our colleague Chris Sheridan for his help. We'll be back.